Good morning. It's great to see you guys today. Hey, I tell our student ministry all the time uh, that they have no idea what we have here with our music ministry. Were you guys blessed this morning by what we participated in just a minute ago? Come on, more than that? Yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic. So as Kevin said earlier, uh, my name is Scott Bolton. I'm the student ministries pastor here at the church. And this is the second week of this series uh, entitled, This Changed My Life. And so what we're doing, the pastors, over the next few weeks, we're looking at passages of Scripture that literally changed our lives. And so uh, today we're going to be looking in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, just 10 verses, and we're going to focus really just on three of them. But uh, this verse really did have a profound impact on my life. It changed my life, and uh, it gave me an identity in Christ. And so um, logos, uh, slogans, those kinds of things, they're really a part of our culture, especially among the teen culture. And so uh, a lot of teens identify with groups of people by the various kinds of clothes they wear, the tags they wear, the brands they wear. And so I need you guys' help this morning. I need you guys to help me identify some of these logos that are up here on the screen. So first of all, we have this one, which is what? Polo. We all know that one. All right. So how about this one right here? Levi's. Didn't you have to put the name on there? You guys know the red tag. When I was a kid growing up, we all had to have the Levi's 501s, right? Anybody else wear 501s when you were a kid growing up, Right. All right, so here's another one. Nike, swoosh, everybody wants the Nike sign right there. And then this one's a little bit newer. Under Armour, you got it right there. And this one's one of my son's favorite brands, Oakley. Anybody say Oregon in here? I know there's a couple of you guys back there who say Oregon, right, all right. So, but that is definitely the Oakley brand. And then we have this one, Lacoste, okay? Some of you guys know that one. So, so that's the cost. And so uh, when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager in 1983, yeah, a long, long time ago, like uh, all my preppy friends, they had to have this brand, Lacoste. However, uh, my mom didn't shop at Macy's. My mom shopped at Mervyn's. You guys remember Mervyn's? Okay. And so Mervyn's always had kind of like the off brands. And so Mervyn's sold a brand like this. You guys remember what that one is right there? Is anybody? The Tigre, there you go. Some of you guys, first service people, they had no clue what that was. So, so that's the Tigre, and that's the brand that I wore. Um, it was kind of like the pseudo polo, the pseudo Lacoste. It was the Tigre, and everybody knew that you got your clothes from, from Mervyn's. At least it wasn't Granimals. Do you guys remember Granimals in here? Anybody? I think that was the greatest concept of all time. You match your pants, which was a hippo, with your shirt that was a hippo, and then it just matched. It seemed like it should have carried on um, forever. But when I was in high school, I did everything I could to fit in. I wanted to, you know, wear the K-Swiss shoes. I had to have the new Reebok pumps. I, I even had some parachute pants. Remember those? Um, I had, me and my buddy Donovan for Easter, we bought Miami Vice suits to wear to church Easter Sunday. You guys probably remember those as well. And so my goal in life was to be like the coolest guy that I knew. He had his own TV show, as Tom Selleck, and his TV show was that right there, right? So there are pictures of me, and you guys are like, wait a minute, Scott, this is church. You can't be showing those kinds of shorts, right? Okay, but... If you're a kid from the 80s, you remember the OP corduroy shorts that were just like that. They were very, very short. And for whatever reason, sometimes we would wear long tube socks too with them. Um, But I had the Sperry Topsiders of every color. Uh, I had the Detroit Tigers hat. I had the Varney sunglasses. I wanted to be Tom Selleck. I even had curly hair, but I really had trouble growing the mustache. But I just thought that if I could be like Tom Selleck, I would fit in. I would know my spot in life. And so maybe you would agree with me. Maybe you can sympathize with me. Maybe uh, you struggled a little bit. Maybe you can still struggle a little bit 
with your identity, with who you are, the person that you are. And again, like I said, working with teenagers for over uh, 24 years, almost 25 years, this is something that is really kind of core to who they are. And so this morning, we're looking at this passage of Scripture, and we're going to discover who we can be in Christ Jesus. You see, all of these logos, all these things that we try to do to fit in, it really goes to two core questions that every person ever has had to, to face. And those questions are this, who am I? Who am I? And what is my purpose? Who am I and what is my purpose? This concept, these ideas, these questions have even uh, reached into secular society. A famous philosopher once said something like, I think, therefore I am, right? Uh, another famous poet, he said something like, to thine own self be what? Be true, right? So this idea of who I am, what is my purpose? It, it, it permeates our culture, and our society. And I honestly believe that those questions are actually placed there by God himself. Because the wisest man ever to live, a guy by the name of Solomon, he was a, a king's king. He was a man's man. He was incredibly powerful. He was incredibly wealthy. He wrestled with this idea as well. And he said this. He said, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. See, I believe Solomon wrestles with the question just like we do. What is my purpose? Who am I? Because we all have this longing, this desire for something more, something greater than just maybe 80 years on this earth can offer. We were created so much more for that. And so with that understanding, I believe it leads to life's greatest question, most important question, and that is this, what do I think about God? If I have this internal desire, this internal longing to know the creator of the universe, the one that gave me life and breath, what do I think about him? What do I think about God? C.S. Lewis said that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. But you see this, this longing, this desire to understand God, our creator, it has very deep roots for each one of us in here this morning. Because it actually begins, our God idea comes from who we understand God to be, and it begins through our parents. So some of us might have had parents who were distant. Maybe they traveled. Maybe they weren't around very much. And so our idea of God is somebody who's distant, who really doesn't play a role in his creation. For other people, maybe God is disconnected. Maybe you grew up with a, a mom or a dad or a dad especially who would sit in his reclining chair after he got home from work and he would just read the paper or watch TV, and he didn't want to be interrupted. And so your idea of God, again, is somebody who is not there, who's not present, not involved, not engaged in your life. For others of us, maybe we had a dad who was a strong disciplinarian, that he was constantly on us to be better, to be more, to just pick out every little thing that we did wrong. And so our idea of God coming from our parents is somebody who's pretty harsh and pretty mean, somebody who holds lightning bolts in his hand and is just waiting to kind of snuff us out. Others of us had very loving, kind, and caring parents, and so we have a very healthy understanding of who God is. But for a lot of people, their understanding of who God is and who their creator is isn't very positive. And then for some of us, as we entered into maybe a relationship with God, maybe we do have a church background, and it can carry even over to today. Unfortunately, some of us, because of how we view the Bible, actually have a skewed view of who 
God is. Maybe we have this distorted view, kind of like if you were at the fair and you went and you saw and stood before a funhouse mirror. It'd be kind of distorted. The reality, the truth is there, the concept is there, but the idea, the really true understanding of who God is has been distorted. And so, so maybe you've heard the Bible described like this. Like maybe, have you heard the Bible described as a sword? Well, let me ask you. See, there's truth in that. Is the Bible a sword? Absolutely. Yes, it is a sword, but is it only a sword? No, it's not. You see, people with the understanding that the Bible is a sword and only a sword, they see God as a general, and that makes me a soldier. And so my job is to stand on street corners and preach hell and damnation so that people will turn from their wicked ways and give their lives to Christ. You know, see, have you been there before? It's a distorted view of the Bible. Or maybe you've heard the Bible described as law. Well, is the Bible law? Yes, the Bible's law, but is it only law? No, it's not only law. People with the understanding the Bible is law, they see God as a judge. And so if God's a judge, then I'm a fugitive, and I'm on the run, and God is waiting to, to destroy me. Other people, and this is very popular today, they understand the Bible as a map. Have you heard the Bible is the roadmap to life? Well, it is the roadmap to life. It does have guidance, but it's not just a map. See, because if you view the Bible as only a map, then you see God is your chauffeur, and that makes you a little God, and you're telling God where you're going to want to go and what you want to do. You order him around. But the best way to view the Bible is that the Bible is a story. It's a narrative. And therefore, God is the author, Christ is the main character, and I'm a cast member in it. However, my purpose is to find my place in God's story. And would you agree with me this morning that the Bible as story is the greatest love story ever written? Absolutely. And that's what we're going to discover a little bit more today. And in reality, you see, beyond how we gain our God ID or how we view God through the Bible, the greatest factor of God, God is what? Love. Right? Love. And see, you can write this down. You see, who loves us and what we love has a profound impact on our lives. And so if you can understand the great love that God has for you, and you can discover his amazing grace that he offers through his love, you will be on the right path. You see, but I also think that there's a tremendous battle in our culture, in our society today, to pull us away from God's great love. And we get distracted, oftentimes, by those logos those slogans that we all seem to be chasing. But again, this passage that we look at today, I believe is the epitome of God's love found in grace. So again, we're gonna look in the book of Ephesians chapter two, but this morning I wanna give you a little bit of context to this passage in, in respect to the whole book itself because it's important to really have a good understanding of this, this book. So the letter is written by Paul while he's in prison to a group of people in in Ephesus. Now, I want to just kind of back up a little bit. So Paul, he went to Ephesus, to this region of Ephesus, and he started a church. He left some young guys in charge, and the church got going, and they faced some persecution, and they didn't want Paul to be there, so he took off, and eventually Paul lands himself into prison. It's about five years later after he started the church there. So he's writing this letter to this group of people there. Now, it's not a church like we're thinking this morning. It wasn't like one letter to one church in Ephesus, because churches in Ephesus were small, and they were scattered. They were more like house churches because they were facing some persecution. So Ephesus itself was a metropolis of about 250,000 people. It was a very modern city for its time. It would be much like our San Francisco Bay Area that we all know so well. It was also a very religious city, 
and they worshipped up to about 50 gods in this city. However, the main god that they worshipped was a goddess by the name of Artemis. And Artemis was a fertility goddess, and Ephesus was her home. There was a, a great hall dedicated to Artemis, and there were statues everywhere to, to Artemis. And there was a large silversmith guild of men who would create these idols of Artemis, and they would sell them to the people within the city. Now, the thing is, is that the city was also a very tolerant city when it came to religion. And so everybody, you know, had their own goddess or god that they worshipped, and they all kind of rallied around Artemis. However, as the church gained and started proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, it started disrupting the business that was going on in the city of Ephesus. You see, people stopped buying, stopped purchasing their little silver idols to Artemis. Now, could you imagine, if that were to happen today, that the gospel spread so much, maybe in our region, that people started persecuting the church because they were disrupting the economics of the region? Well, that's exactly what was happening in the city. So Paul writes this letter, and it's, it's two purposes. Number one, it's to encourage those who are leading the church there in Ephesus to continue to do a good job. However, because the gospel was being spread so quickly and so rapidly, there were people that were coming in from Gentile backgrounds and Jewish backgrounds, and they were bringing in their Jewish and their Gentile worship practices and their lifestyles into the church there. So it was also causing some disruption within the church. So again, Paul writes this letter to the people at Ephesus, to the church at Ephesus, again, to be an encouragement to them to continue to do the good job that they're doing, but also to clarify so that they really, truly grasped and understood what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ and how their lifestyle should be after accepting him. Now, what's amazing to me is if you go home this afternoon and you spend some time, it's not very long, six chapters, and you read through the book of Ephesians, maybe for you, like it was for me, it's amazing how relevant the book of Ephesians is to our culture, to me today. I could probably just stand up here and read the book to you, and we'd all go home and go, wow, that was really awesome. It was impacting. Again, literally, this passage of Scripture changed my life, and I hope that it's as impacting to you this morning. So I'm going to read 10 verses, and then we're going to go back, and we're just going to dissect three of them this morning. All right, so Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But, but, big but in the Bible right here. But, that'd be a great sermon-like series title, <laughs> Big Butts in the Bible. Hey, I'm a youth pastor. Come on, you got to give me some mercy, right? All right. <laughs> so, but because of his great love for us, maybe you want to underline that, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And here's the section we'll focus on this morning. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. 
It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance, in advance to do, so that we would walk in them. Would you pray with me for a moment? Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would bless the reading of your word. God, your word is alive, it is rich, it is powerful, and it is relevant for us here today. God, I pray that as we look at these next few verses, God, I pray again that you would open up our hearts, you would open up our minds and our spirits to you, and that you would teach us this morning. God, I pray that we might discover something new about this amazing grace that you offer to us, and that we, and here for some, might receive it for the first time this morning. God, I pray for others that we might be reminded of your amazing grace and that you created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we might do the good works that you planned for us long ago. And we'd be challenged to continue to walk in them and with you. So God, it's in your son's name that we pray this morning. Amen. So there are three things I want you guys to see uh, this morning when it comes to God's amazing grace. And the first thing is this. You see, God's amazing grace is undeserved. God's amazing grace is undeserved. Again, back in verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So remember back to the context. He's writing to both Jews and Gentiles, new believers in Jesus Christ. And for both of these groups of people, it was custom for them to understand the idea that to be saved or to engage in relationship with God to, to go to heaven required good works on their parts. Again, very relevant for today. If you were to ask the average person on the street, I believe 90% of them would tell you that to get to heaven, they simply had to be a good person. But Paul right here tells us it's not about being good. It's nothing that we can deserve to enter into heaven. It's not by our works. It's only by God's grace. Maybe you've heard it said this way. You see, God's grace, grace stands for this. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. So we gain everything that God has to offer, but it's only through Jesus Christ, and it's through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Understand that this is a free gift, and that it's a free gift initiated by God in the greatest act of love, and that's the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross. See, I was undeserved of God's grace, of God's love. In Romans chapter 5 verse 8, Paul also writes this. He says, but God demonstrated <clears throat> his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, what did he do? Christ died for us. Now, if you read this whole passage, you'll see that, that Paul writes and he talks about how, you know, somebody might die for somebody good, but who would die for their enemy? Jesus did. Jesus died for me. You see, I was a sinner. <clears throat> I was an enemy of God. My, my sin put Christ on that cross. But because of God's great love for me, undeserved, he died for me. And he died for you. You see, I deserved death. But God took that for me through Jesus Christ. And again, there's nothing that I can do to pay for my own debt. Let's look at it this way. So John's here this morning, and John and I are good friends, but let's just say for whatever reason, after church is over with, we go out to the parking lot, and John actually just became a police officer, John Davis, you might maybe know him, recognize him, whatever. But John and I have a conversation. After church, I murdered John. 
Wait, what? <laughs> what did you just say? Okay, yeah, we have this argument, and I murdered John. But, but wait, wait, wait. So I murdered John, and then immediately afterward, I go down to Tracy Interfaith, and I start volunteering. I go downtown, I start feeding some homeless people. Then I jump on a plane, and I go to China, and I share the gospel with like a thousand Chinese people over the course of a couple weeks. Then I come back to Tracy, and I head down to the animal shelter, and I adopt all the animals, even the cats. <laughs> but I get arrested. I get arrested, right? And so I go before the judge, and, and I'm charged with murder, murder of John. But I stand before the judge, and I explain my case. Look, yes, I understand I murdered John, okay? But I immediately went down to the homeless shelter, and I helped feed you know, homeless people. I went to China, and I, I preached the gospel, and thousands of Chinese people accepted Christ. And then I came home, and I went to the animal shelter. I adopted all the puppies and even the cats. <laughs> even the cats. <laughs> Would the judge be satisfied? Would John's family be satisfied? No. What would they want? Justice, right? Justice. See, that's the same thing. Jesus satisfied my debt. He took my debt. I did not deserve that. But out of God's great love for me, he died for me. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And I don't really know how it works but I can only love God, I can only reciprocate my love to God because he first loved me. That's what John said. We love him because he first loved us. And somehow, in all of that, God gives me the ability to place my faith into him. Faith is huge. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. I want you to understand something. You see, salvation does not come from believing ideas or an emotional decision, but from being bonded to Christ in faith. It takes that. So what is that faith? It's an, it's an action step. Faith requires action. Again, this was something that the Jews at that time would understand because ever since a Jewish boy or girl was very young, they were taught the commandments, they were taught by their parents. It goes all the way back to the time of Moses. In the book of Deuteronomy, when God gives the Ten Commandments, when God gives the law, every parent would sit down with their, their children morning and night and throughout the day and teach them the commandments of God. And it started with this, what's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. Hear, listen, understand. But to the Jewish person, the word Shema, that understanding, was not just hear, but it was also to do. That had to have action that went along with it. To just hear something isn't obedience. We can hear. You guys understand that as parents. You hear me, but you're not listening to me. Why do you hear me, but you don't do what I tell you to do, right? We get that. It's the same thing with God. So faith is not just believing, it's action. A really good way to understand this is from a story that I recently read about a guy by the name of Great Blondin. He's from the 1850s. He was French, and so he came to the United States, and the Great Blondin had an incredible talent incredible ability. He would walk across a tightrope over a very high expanse. And so he moved to Niagara, and so he began to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And so again, remember this is the 1850s, before the internet, before television, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, great entertainment. So hundreds of people, thousands of people would come and watch the great blonde and walk across Niagara Falls. And so he got super good at this. So he would uh, get on stilts, and he would walk across 
Niagara Falls on these stilts. And one time he took a bicycle and he rode a bicycle across this tightrope over Niagara Falls. Even one time he took a little stove, he went out to the middle on the tightrope, sat down, and he made himself an omelet over the top of the Niagara Falls. So he kept trying to do something greater and greater and greater. And so finally he had this incredible idea. So he advertised that he would carry somebody on his back across Niagara Falls. And so the day of the event, thousands of people gathered to watch him carry somebody across Niagara Falls. But this is how he started. How many of you believe that I can carry a man across the Niagara Falls? Where everybody cheer, we do, we believe, we believe. I said, how many of you believe that I can carry a man across Niagara Falls? Oh, we do, we do. Okay, so I just need one volunteer. <laughs> he waited. One volunteer. <laughs> one volunteer. After a period of time, nobody was willing to get on his back and be carried across Niagara Falls. Finally, he convinced his, his agent to come out, and he carried his agent across Niagara Falls. You see, it's the exact same thing for us. We have to have such a faith in Jesus that we're willing to be bonded to him, to place 100% of our faith in him, to take action in him, to receive that faith that we do not deserve, that love, that amazing grace that he gives to us. So the first thing is that God's grace is undeserved. The second thing, God's amazing grace is unrivaled. God's amazing grace is unrivaled. There's absolutely nothing that can compare to the riches of his grace. Let's go back and read a little bit before verse 8. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For again, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. I want you just to imagine for a moment the greatest gift that you've ever been given. Maybe you made it known to somebody that this is what you wanted and that person got you that gift. And just remember the excitement that you had. For me, when I was about 10 years old, it was my Evil Knievel stunt bike. Does anybody remember that? That's all I wanted for Christmas. And I remember going down Christmas morning, looking on the tree and finding my Evil Knievel stunt bike and it was absolutely awesome. Well, God's grace doesn't even compare to Evil Knievel stunt bike, right? Now, I want you to think about it in reverse. Think about the greatest gift that you've ever given to somebody. Now, I think I'm a great gift giver. I absolutely love to give gifts. I'm that guy that stands in Rayleigh's in the Hallmark section for a half an hour looking for the absolute perfect card to give to my wife for her birthday or for our anniversary. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you're like that. And so when I'm going to give a gift to somebody, I'm going to really do some research, and I'm going to look, and I'm going to try to find out what it is that they want, and I will get that thing. I'll get the best version of that thing that I can get for them. Now imagine that's you. And imagine you search and you find the absolute perfect gift. You know that this is the gift. This is the thing that the person wanted. And so on that day, you wrap up that gift and you're almost ex as excited as the person is that's going to receive that gift. And so that day, you go to that person and you give them their gift. And you're just full of anticipation and excitement. And, and they open that gift and they look at it and they are incredibly appreciative. 
oh, this is awesome. This is exactly what I wanted. I cannot believe that you found it. And then they reach in their pocket and they ask you, now how much do I owe you? How would you feel? How much do I, you owe me? Do you know what it took for me to get you this gift? You see, you can't buy a gift. A gift is, is free and it has to be received. The only thing that we can do possibly is to reciprocate that with an act of gratitude, with appreciation. So that is this gift that God offers to us. It's actually what Paul describes to us in chapter 12 of Romans, where the only thing that we can give back to God in appreciation for this gift that is unrivaled, the greatest gift that God could ever give to you, is our lives as an act of worship. And so I want to ask you, do you really understand what this gift is that God gives you? It's providing for you. Because if you do, then something has to happen. Your life has to change. Something has to be different. And that was me. When I received God's gift of salvation, I almost failed out of school. Because all I wanted to do was read his Bible. I was in college when I received Christ when I was 19 years old. And all I wanted to do was read the scriptures. I wanted to get to know God. And then I wanted to serve him. I had a 1.8 GPA my sophomore year. I brought it up. Graduated 2.9. You know how hard it is to go from a 1.8 to a 2.9 in two years? But all I wanted to do was serve him. I wanted to give my life to him because I understood. And so I want to ask you this morning, how has your life changed? What is different because you've received this incredible, unrivaled gift that God has to offer through Jesus Christ. And so that leads to this third point, and that's that God's amazing grace is inescapable. Again, if you've experienced that grace, your life is going to be different. The rest of your life is going to be different. It has to change. It cannot be helped, and it's not temporary. It has to be forever forever. Again, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I've memorized and memorized and shared and, and witnessed with it, told other people about it, but for whatever reason, it took a while for me to get to Ephesians 2, 10. And Ephesians 2, 10 is, is just unbelievably incredible. So Paul concludes this little passage by saying this, you see, for we are God's handiwork, created anew, created in Christ anew, made new in Christ created in Christ Jesus, to do what? To do good works. Now, he already talked about how it's not by our works that we're saved, but now he says, after you receive Christ, you're going to do something. You're going to do good works. But he continues on. He says, these good works, this life, God has prepared in advance for us to do so that we would walk in them. It's going to be a change. It's going to be continuation. Again, it's not temporary, but I want you to get this word this is incredibly important, especially to, to teenagers. And so parents, if your teenagers don't know this, which they should because I teach about this very often, I want them to understand what this word handiwork really means. Other translations describe it as a masterpiece. For we are God's handiwork. We are God's masterpiece. The original Greek uses the word poema. Poema. What does that sound like? Sounds like our English word, where we get our English word for poem. We are God's story. We're part of God's story. And he's made us new in Christ so that we can do the good things, the good works that he planned for us long ago. He's been thinking about you for a very long time. 
And he wants you to live in his story, to do good works, to reciprocate that love, to share that grace with people around us. Now, I want you to understand something. I'll repeat this and repeat this and repeat this. You have to understand that I believe that we are all God's creation. We're all special. God saved the best for last. We are the highest of God's creation. However, we're not all God's children. It is only by receiving forgiveness, by believing in faith, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that we can become adopted children of God. But when we do, when we do, we are God's masterpiece. One of my favorite verses, Jesus talks and he says, if you evil men know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give to you? I love my kids. Love my kids, but do I think they're masterpieces? (laughs) At times, right? At times. But God sees you as his masterpiece, as his handiwork, as his poema, created anew to do good things, to walk in Christ, to do those good things that he planned for you long ago. If you read the Bible enough, you'll discover that Paul does not like to use the word works in a positive way. Oftentimes it's in a negative way. But here he says that he's created you anew to do good works to do good things. John Stott said, good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its grounds or means, but as consequences and evidence. Something's going to change. Good works are fruit of your salvation. And I need to tell you in my life, again, as impacting as this verse is, I've lived an amazing journey. God has taken me to amazing places to share his amazing grace with so many people. And I promise you, God will never break his promise to you. You give your life to Christ, you will live an amazing life if you ask him. I mean, I know it seems like a dangerous prayer, but the most dangerous place to be is outside of the will of God. I saw that with my daughter. She went to Haiti on a missions trip, and she had to stay in a compound. Anytime you have to stay in a compound, it's a pretty dangerous place. But she said, Dad, I know this is what God wants me to do. And so she raised the money and she went to Haiti on a missions trip and she helped deliver babies for a week. And it was an unbelievable experience. God will take you on an amazing journey. And if you just pray, God, use me, use me, he will, I promise. So it's almost been a year since I had the opportunity to speak to you and a lot has changed in that time. My wife and I are now officially empty nesters. I know you're like, dude, you're like 26. How can you be an empty nester? (laughs) No. But a lot has changed. Our daughters are out of the house and, and our son is out of the house. And so you might remember a year ago that I spoke about my son. And uh, at that time, he was facing a tremendous test of his faith. And if you know him, he's not a very emotional person. But there was a day when we sat down after a game at our kitchen table and he was just facing just unbelievable pressure for his faith, for his faith, for standing up for, for what he believed in. And he almost walked away from the sport that he loves in baseball. And we reminded him of this right here. Son, we love you. If you never walk on a mound again, it'll be all right. Because you belong to God. You belong to God. Your life has purpose. Your life has meaning. 
And honestly, again, like I said, the battle was almost too much to bear, but we told them we'll support you 100% in what you do, whatever you do, because we love you and we know that God loves you. But fortunately, through his faith, his uh, friends, mentors, and coaches, uh, not only did he survive, but he became a great influence to people around him. Uh, We were able to see one of his teammates accept Christ and be baptized, which was incredibly awesome. And then this just past year, uh, we had some things really ha- amazing happen, and, and even beyond the, the success that he had on the field, it was the compliments that we received as parents and that he received uh, as an individual from other parents. And parents, let me tell you two things real quick. Number one, uh, there's almost no greater joy than when somebody comes to you and tells you how amazing your, your kid is, right? Okay, and it, when it happens, you need to honor your kids. You need to lift them up because they live in such a negative world with so much pressure. And so when people come and compliment you about your kids, you need to tell them. You need to lift them up. You need to honor them. And then secondly, let me, well, I'll get to that in just a second. <laughs> right. but, uh, but I need your help with one more logo. Can you help me with this logo? <laughs> All right. So um, some of you may know and may not know <clears throat> or may not know that uh, my son was recently drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates in the sixth round to play baseball. Yeah, (laughs) it's pretty amazing. Um, So let me tell you what I was going to tell you just a second ago. But parents, I got to tell you this. I just got to tell you. So I had a daughter that played soccer, and uh, she went to college and played soccer in college. I have a son that's now a professional athlete playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And it was pretty rare that my kids would miss a Sunday morning uh, to go play baseball or to go play soccer. And I'm just here to tell you that you don't have to sacrifice coming to church Grandparents, you might need to talk to your kids about this. You do not have to sacrifice coming to church for sports or for anything else for that matter. And one of my greatest joys is to see a teenager walk into a youth worship service wearing their, their uniform, either coming from a game or going to a game. Now, it's a little bit of a problem with swimmers. I often tell them, don't come in their <laughs> uniform <laughs> to church. But, but you do not have to sacrifice your faith for anything, for sports or for whatever. And I would also encourage you as a parent... Uh, to be a light, to be a light when you're around other parents in those sports environments. But you do not have to sacrifice your faith, church, living at the soccer field or the baseball diamond or wherever, whatever, for your kid to succeed. I promise you that. I'm living proof, and we can talk about that later on. Now, here's the deal. My son is not perfect, all right? Uh, He has a long way to go, but again, you guys, and I wanted to share this with you because it's through our church. It's just really through this. It's through friends here at the church. It's through just, just people that we love. It's through you and the support that you've given him, that you've given us as a family, that I believe that he's able to be where he is and do the things that he's doing. Like I said, he's got a long way to go, and that environment is, is brutal. It's a struggle. I mean, it's tough. It's really tough. And so we pray, and I would covet your prayers that maybe you would include him in your prayers to, to just have God to continue to make him strong and to be a light, to be a witness. And one of the first things we ask when he gets there, is, or he's there now, but is, uh, you know, there's a chapel every Sunday at 6 o'clock. You need to go. There's a church five miles away. You need to go. You need to get there. And so we're trying to encourage him to get there. But again, like your kids, like anybody else, this can't be our faith. It has to be his faith. This has to be your faith. You have to walk in these good things that God prepared for you long ago. And so, so the other part of this is just the joy. 
And I'll tell you just for a second. So here's, this is a picture of him. Uh, he's finally got his uniform on or whatever, but he really lived by this verse right here. We believe that God has elevated him. God has done some amazing things in his life because he's humbled himself before him. And just to see the joy on his face is absolutely incredible. Now, this thing about struggling with identity and who you are, let me just tell you, I'm almost done, but let me tell you, this was a, a struggle, a struggle. When we were going through the draft, you know, he had this decision to make. Am I going to go to college or am I going to go play baseball? And, you know, a lot of people tell him, go to college, go to college. And other people were telling him, like, no, you need to go play baseball. You only have one shot, one chance. You can get hurt and you can never, you know, play. And so we kind of set a bar that he would not go unless he received this amount of money. And so we talked to his agent, and his agent was like, yeah, that's pretty reasonable. And so day one goes by, and we're watching the draft going, well, maybe, you know, he'll get drafted in, in, in day one, which is the first round, the supplemental round, the second round. And so his name didn't call, get called, and we were okay with that. But everybody was telling us, oh, you know, early, be ready, early the second day. Be ready early on Tuesday. Early on Tuesday, you're going to hear your name called. Well, round three goes by, didn't hear his name. Round three and a half goes by, four goes by, and he still doesn't hear his name. And all of a sudden, he's feeling like maybe this isn't going to be, maybe this isn't going to happen. Struggling with his identity. I'm not good enough. And let me tell you, later on, the team drafted a pitcher before him who had an ACL surgery and pitched with a, a brace all year long. And I was joking with him later, telling him that, look, they took a handicapped kid before you. <laughs> he was okay with it. All right. <laughs> but he starts having these doubts, like, God, Dad, maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. And so we talk and we talk, and I hear him in the fourth round. He gets on the phone with his agent, and he says, you know, I, I think I'm just going to go play, play college. And, and he gets off the phone, and I pull him aside, and I look in his eyes, and I tell him, Cody, what do you want to do? Don't, don't just do what we want you to do. What is your heart telling you to do? What do you really want to do? And he said, Dad, and I could see his heart in his eyes. Dad, I really want to go play ball. I said, son, just like we told you before, we know whose you are. We know who you belong to. We know the person that God can use you to be. And we want you to follow your heart. So if you want to play ball, son, we will support you 100%. So he got back on the phone with his agent. Okay, I'm in. I'm all in. I'm ready to go. And then he gets the call. And we celebrate and we're happy. And the journey's just beginning. But I know and this is what I want you guys to understand. With you that have teenagers, you that have kids, just remind them every day whose they are. They belong to God first. And when you have God on your side and God on your back, how can you fail? Because you have this amazing grace that you never earned, that you don't deserve, that is unparable, that you cannot walk away from. You can't escape it when you believe it and you put your faith in Christ. And so I want to leave you with this last thing. I want to ask you, how has God's amazing grace impacted my life? What is different about your life because of your relationship with God through Jesus? If it hasn't changed, let me challenge you. Let me ask you, have you received God's grace in your life? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sins? Have you asked him to take your debt of sin? Have you put your trust, your faith in him? And then maybe there's others in here who needs a little bit of encouragement. Like maybe your faith has been a little stagnant. Maybe you need a little bit of re-energization in it. What can God do in your life? Can you pray that prayer, God, use me? God, I want to walk in your ways. God, I want to do good works for you. God, give me the opportunity to do so. In a moment, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper.
And for some of you, maybe this is that time, this is that moment where you fully understand that his body was broken and his blood was shed for you so that you might be able to experience his amazing grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. God, I thank you for this church. God, I thank you for the love and the support over the years that we've been able to experience. God, I pray that, that if there's somebody in here this morning who doesn't know that, who hasn't experienced your amazing grace, who doesn't know the, the love of a community, of church, of a body of believers, that today might be that day where they give their lives to you. And God, I pray that they would not just keep it to themselves, but they would share it with their family, with their friends, with us, so that we also might be able to rejoice with them. God, I pray that you would just uh, put opportunities ahead of us to do good works, to be able to share your grace with those around us, God. God, that we would, again, experience your forgiveness and then forgive others. God, we just thank you for your love that you've extended to us that we do not deserve, but you make available through your son, Jesus. And it's through Jesus' name that we pray, amen.